All right, so I'm going to jump into it. I'm going to look at my watch here and there because our screen back there is not working, so I have no idea what time it is. But we're going to we're going to have we're going to have a, a series, a small series of talks, and and the title of this series is Time with God. It's not even my title; it's Tommy's title. He's going to be preaching next week. We happen to be thinking, marinating in this topic of time with God, and so uh, this week and next week. So I was in here on, I think it was Tuesday, I was in here, and I was just praying. You know, we had a men's ministry time here on Saturday. We had the ladies' Bible study uh, here on Tuesday that night. I was praying for the worship team, praying for the children's church. I was just praying, right? And I'm walking around this space, and, you know, I'm up on the stage praying for instruments, praying for the people on the instruments, just praying. And so I'm just walking the stage, just like looking at the cross, and I'm like, wow, that's mounted really nicely. It's solid. I'm like, that's good, because you just lean against the wall. I was kind of fascinated by that. And I, I looked at the cross, and like, there's some writing on the cross. So actually, if you wouldn't mind putting that up. Oh, it's up there. I took a picture. And if you can't read it, it says, it's on the cross. Struggle with awareness of his presence and full love and acceptance always. Uh huh. I don't know who wrote it. If you're sitting here, somebody might might be who wrote it is sitting here, and I say, God bless you for your honesty, and I trust victory specifically for what you wrote. And so I took a picture, and I started thinking about it. Like literally, after I took the picture, I started thinking about it. It's like, so if somebody said, Well, this is what I struggle with, what would I say? And I started to entertain a lot of ideas about, well, I could say this, I could teach them this, I could da-da-da-da-da-da-da. And I just felt God say, focus less on what they need to do and focus more on what I have done. That's just what I felt him say. So that's what I'm going to do. Trying to answer that because it's real, it's genuine, it's authentic. And it's very appropriate that it's on the cross. So the way we're going to do this, because I could say, I could, when I preach or teach, I could do a lot of things and give you advice on things you need to do, but we're not doing that today. In fact, I would actually encourage you, just sit back, because it's not on you now. Sit back, listen, and let's just see what God has done. And I have a roadmap of how we're going to do that. So this roadmap is, what was God's original intention for man to spend time with him? We're going to actually spend a little bit more time, I think, on that one. Part two, how did God address the separation problem when it arose? And part three is, what did the solution look like for us? So that's the mini roadmap of what I'm hoping to accomplish today. But we're going to start, as I said, what was God's original intention for man to spend time with him. Remember this title of this mini-series, Time with God. So, always great when you can peg any thought of theology back in Genesis 3. So let's go there. Genesis 3, verse 8, and it says, And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And we know this part. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord. They hid from the presence 
of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Then the Lord God called to Adam and said to him, Where are you? Where are you? There's so much in here that we're just going to pause because, yes, it is post-fall. They sinned. There was separation literally hid from his presence. And at least at initial level, and maybe this will help you break some boxes of religion, so they had already sinned. They already had the stain of sin upon them. They already had rebelled to the one thing God said, don't do that. And God knew what had happened. And God's walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and he's calling for them. Your theology, if it's based on pure religion, would say, well, I have this thing that is now offensive to God, and it is an offense. And somehow this offense that is a stain upon me disqualifies me from approaching God. And yes, there is something that he had to deal with with that. But it's interesting if you just look at a very basic heart level, God knew, and yet he's walking and he's calling for Adam. That represents something of just the heart of God. See, it's a lot easier for us to identify with all the things of apprehension about knowing because your conscience will speak and says, yeah, you're not right. Like, things are not right in your life. And we're very easily, very quick to self-impose exile. It's like the easiest, most natural thing. It's like, yeah, I haven't done this, 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 and this. And it's like, oh, you know, I just, I wish I was better. And so that apprehension is the opposite of boldness. To approach the one. So, but while this is post-fall, it's a very clear indication of what God's intention was. If you're just willing to entertain what it is saying at its heart. So we're going to do that. And I want to spend some time doing that. So what can we infer? And so I've listed three things. I said, what was it like before the fall? And Adam being in the presence of the Lord God, because it says like, it's not an unusual event that only occurred probably after the fall, but they, God was walking in the cool of the garden and he's calling for Adam. So Adam being in his presence resulted in three things. And I'm sure there's more, but these are just three things that I wrote. And the first one is relationship. This is as basic as this gets, but yet the most radical if you really think about it. See, in Genesis, God was revealed as the creator. And in the New Testament, God was revealed as a father. See, in Luke chapter 4, it literally lists the genealogy. This person's son of, this person's son of, this person. It gets to the very end and it says, Adam, son of God. Adam, son of God. And so when you imagine Adam being in his presence, the first filter you have to place on what was it like? What was his experience? What would have resulted in Adam, it's, it's a relationship, and it's a familial relationship of a father walking with a son. It's not Adam walking with a consultant that has good ideas and self-help. It's Adam walking with the father that embedded in the heart of the father because we know, and actually it speaks, 
you know, upon, at the end of the old and transitioning into the new covenant, it says that I would turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the children to the fathers. Unless that doesn't happen, I'll strike the earth with a curse. So that's in the fall. So now you have to translate back. So what was it before the fall? The heart of the fathers was turned to the children already and the children to the fathers. So baked in into this simple relational aspect of Adam being in the presence of God, of a son with the father, as their hearts were turned to each other because the fall separated. But that wasn't ever the intention or the experience. Adam had a deep longing and affection to the father. His heart was turned to the father and the father in return did the same thing. The father's heart and affection was to the son with Adam. That was the original intention. That's what it looked like. It wasn't two friends per se. It wasn't one that was helping the other. It was a father with a son with their hearts towards each other. What else did Adam being in his presence result in? Number two is worship. How? So Romans 1 verse 20 says this, For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead. So most people will translate this, and it's true. For those of you that love nature, you experience this as a matter of course. Bad day, terrible day. Oh, but I go out amongst the trees, the mountains. I look at the fields, and I just feel closer to God because creation in its beauty points to God. Again, remember, this is post-fall. So if I just put this exact template, because this wasn't limited to the fall, after the fall. Because it says, for since the creation of the world, which means Adam experienced exactly that. Since the creation of the world, since the beginning, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by, understood by the things that are made, which is Adam. He was made. So he, the one that was created, is experiencing all of this that you, we, now experience today, that when I walk amongst nature, I feel closer to God because everything points to God and his greatness and his goodness. So now put yourself in Adam's shoes. Adam, the created one, is walking with the creator and they're walking together. And everything he's encountering is magnifying and pointing to the one he's walking with. It's like, oh, like me, I'm hungry. It's like, oh, oh, here's some trees with some food. Oh, this is awesome. And it's pointing, you did that. God, you, you did that. And he walks again with God. And he looks at this amazing expanse and the animals in the forest. He's like, oh, just blessed in his soul. And again, it points to, you did that. Like, this is like a natural result of his experience of just walking with God in his presence amongst his, the creation and being the created one. Everything points back to God and his goodness and the Godhead. Like, nonstop. Which means that in his walk, in his presence of God, 
worship is springing forth nonstop, continually. Now, you don't really have any context for that because, well, the falls happen. But think about this. There's an analogy to this. So Clayton's been talking about your ministry. You have a ministry. And yes, it relates to your unique talents and gifts. Sure. I said, but part of your ministry at a general form is reconciliation. You have a ministry of reconciliation, which is to reconcile what is needs to be reconciled, which is it's out of order, and we're going to reconcile, which means it's now brought into order. So a way I can say that is you in your ministry, and you've experienced this at some level, like, oh, there's a situation. It's messed up. Like, God never intended this. Could be a relational issue. Could be a healing issue. I mean, whatever. Like, this was never God's design. Well, yeah, because the fall happened. And you have a ministry to reconcile that to make it what it was supposed to be. So, oh, you know, you, you do your thing and whatever the issue is could be a relational issue, that strain, and all of a sudden you're praying and you're ministering and blah, blah, blah. And then all of a sudden, boom, it's back to where it's supposed to be. And you look at that because that's now God's creation and his intention is like, you did that. God, you did that. And it produces in you as a part of your ministry of reconciliation. It's all pointing back to God. So I submit to you that Adam, in his presence, was this never-ending stream of reminders, magnifying, extolling, and glorifying the Creator. Couldn't help it. It's like literally a law of nature. Yeah, it's kind of a pun, but it's literally like a law of nature codified in Romans 1.20 that this is the way it worked. Nonstop, all the time, because everything did. There was nothing spoiled. Everything was pointing to God. And we see like snippets of that. That's number two. God's intention. Remember, this is God's intention, his design. This is what he wanted it to look like when his children are in his presence number three what else what else did Adam being in his presence result in peace peace and I know that's a really big word that's super treasured right but I want you to think about one thing because when Adam when God was walking in the garden said Adam heard the sound. Actually, that translation of that word is actually more appropriately voice. He heard the voice of the Lord God walking in the cool of the day in the garden. Now, not complicated, but you got to put yourself there. Try and put yourself there. Don't even think about Eve yet. Just think about Adam. A father walking with his son by design. And how many voices were there? Hmm. One. Outside of Adam. Adam is walking with God, and there is a singular voice that he hearkens to. Because we kind of know what happened when a second voice entered the equation. Because the second voice questioned the first voice. Did God really say that? But put that aside. Just remember the intention. Adam is walking with God, and he heard one voice. One. Now, 
for some of you in the natural, that's kind of hard to imagine, but you kind of understand the idea. In the midst of a crowd, and there's many voices, the one that you want to hearken to, you have to get closer to. That somehow, someone, maybe you have to go in another room, but you have to be intentional to actually segment yourself, confine yourself with the voice that you're trying to adhere to. Somehow you have to shut out all the voices that have great opinions, but yeah, I'm not interested in what you have to say. I'm interested to the one that I hearken to. So when all the other voices get set aside, put down, silenced, and there is now only one, and effectively the way you had to do that, that you had to get closer to, what does that look like? Intimacy. Intimacy. Because you've hearkened to the one voice. There is no other. All of them have been separated and gone silent. So now, when you have a singular voice, you know, I thought about this the other day, chatted to my wife about it. I'm like, wow, kind of simple, isn't it? Like if I hear only one voice that's true, authentic, and that is good, by definition, I have clarity. By definition. Like I don't even have to try. I don't have to work to get clarity. I don't have to think, a lot of times, if I say, well, do you have clarity? It's like, well, I haven't figured it out. Well, yeah, that's what we naturally gravitate towards. That somehow, based upon what I'm hearing, I've got to process it and figure it out. And once I've figured it out, now it's clear. It's like, no. No. I propose to you that if you heard the singular voice of God, again, this is not a consultant. This is as a father speaking to a child. If you heard the singular voice of a father which is a heart for his child and the father is speaking to his child, there would be clarity. Because everything that was said would be for the benefit of the child and there is no ambiguity whatsoever. Like the worst thing I could do to my son is like, you know, it would be great if you blah, 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 blah. And he's like, what did you say? Oh, isn't that clear? No, all I hear is blah, 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 blah. He'd be like, man, uh, this got messed up. A father carrying the heart for his son or his daughter. What he says is ultimately to the benefit of his son or his daughter. And what he says will be clear. The only confusion is when some other voice begins to enter into the equation and tries to convince them that maybe that's not what God really said. And it is a supremely interesting exercise when I consider this landscape and I consider man and I consider like, what's one of the best things that I can help somebody do to achieve clarity? The best thing I can try and do and pray in this regard is that God, that they would hear solely God's voice and not the others. Because that's what Adam experienced. He heard a singular voice, the voice of his father. That brought clarity. That included intimacy. And out of all of that, he had peace. Peace. Quite a treasured commodity in this day. So, Adam got relationship as a father and a son. 
Walking with God and in his presence produced worship and peace. Sounds like a pretty good intentional design. That if I were to say, well, this is what you could get, you would understand the heart of a father in true relationship. You would get in your spirit, in your person, what would rise is worship and peace. You'd be like, yeah, sign me up to that course. Because if that's what I want, I pray for that. So I spent a little bit of time here. And the sum total of everything that I said is, that is God's design of you in his presence. And I know you're thinking there, okay, yeah, my, this not really lining up to my experience so far. Okay, fine. But appreciate and just at least at this juncture of part one, just say to yourself, okay, I think I can see that's God's intention and his design. So now let's move on to part two. So how did God address the separation problem when it arose? Because yeah, there was a problem. The fall of man. Genesis 3.8, right back there. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God. They was a self-imposed exile from the presence of God. And as we've discussed and you've heard, God wasn't caught by surprise. So how did he deal with this problem? He actually dealt with this problem before it ever occurred, before even the creation of the world. And I'm just going to read some scripture because I'm going to let it speak for itself because I don't really need to provide commentary. God addressed this problem before it arose, before creation. There is the, the general subject is this everlasting covenant that was struck before the creation of the world between the Godhead. And it's God's complete plan involving creation and redemption. Hebrews 13 20 says, Now may the God of peace who brought up our Lord Jesus from the dead, that great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant. It's all before creation. He anticipated, he knew the problem that would occur, and he provided a solution ultimately from, to take it from creation to redemption. Ephesians 1 verse 4, Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace by which he made us accepted in the beloved. All part of the plan of the everlasting covenant. And you've heard the new covenant, that you should be familiar with that because that's what we are a part of. And the new covenant actually becomes this covenant of redemption by which God restores man back to his original purpose in creation, which is man being free to be in the presence of God. Now, most covenants come with blessings, and that's a blessing. There's actually a curse. See, the curse of the everlasting covenant is banishment from the presence of God. Banishment from the presence. That's the curse. But for those that have put their faith on the finished, complete works of Jesus Christ, that is never a curse that will alight upon them. So, that was God's response to the problem. He dealt with it beforehand. 
anticipated, provided for it, but ultimately, remember, the whole plan was designed to take you from creation to redemption. So, part three, what did the solution look like for us? And there is a lot here, but I'm going to give you some highlights because all I'm trying to do is get you to look at this from a perspective of his presence, his intention, what it looked like in the garden. What was the design? How was it supposed to work? How would we benefit in just being in his presence? And we went over that. And now the fall happened. And there was preparation for the new covenant that ultimately brought redemption for which we live in. And as I said, it's always been about God being with his people. And that in and of itself can be offensive to anybody with a religious background because it's all, it's, ultimately about making your way justifying what you get you reap what you sow and the notion of relationship doesn't quite enter the equation because it's more about you from your perspective thinking what do I need to do but as I said at the beginning we're not doing that this is all about now flipping it around and you appreciating what God's original intention was, the solution he prepared before the creation of the world, and now what he did to restore relationship, to have his presence becoming manifest amongst his people. And what he did was ultimately scandalous because it just, nobody knew. So God foreshadowed a way for his people to approach him through use of an intermediary. But it's all foreshadowing, okay? So Exodus 25, verse 8, it says this. This is now in the, under the law with Moses. And let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them. This has always been about relationships. It's always been about God being with his people. And here in Exodus 25, he said, why are we codifying this, the tabernacle of Moses, all the rules, all the rela- regulations, the sacrifice system, but... The intention was that God would be able to dwell with his people. All by design. And you know, which has been preached a number of times, I'm just going to go over, but the point in the the tabernacle of Moses, there was the most holy place, Ark of the Covenant, the mercy seat, where the blood was applied, and the high priest couldn't just go anytime into the most holy place where God's presence was manifest. But the high priest could go once a year on the Day of Atonement, but only with blood. Only with blood. And there was a veil between the most holy place and the holy place. So what did God do? The new covenant was the fulfillment as Jesus solved the separation problem. Just reading more scripture, Matthew 27, verse 50, and Jesus cried out again with a loud voice when he was crucified on the cross and yielded up his spirit. Then behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The separation that was existed, that was codified between the most holy place where the presence of God was resident, the veil separating it from everybody else was torn. Hebrews 10, 19. Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he consecrated for us through the veil, 
that is his flesh. There was separation. It was a separation problem. It was sin. God dealt with that in the new covenant by Jesus in his sacrifice on the cross, such that the veil that was separating God from being fully present with his people was now thrown wide open. But the plan, the ultimate plan, was one shrouded in mystery. As I'm just reading the Bible, letting it speak for itself. 1 Corinthians 2, 7. But we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery, the hidden wisdom which God ordained before the ages for our glory, which none of the rulers of this age knew. For had they known, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. As in... The plan conceived before the creation of the world to deal with the ultimate problem of the separation from man and the presence of God as part of the everlasting covenant to take it from creation ultimate to redemption, now it will be revealed. And had they known that this was the solution, Jesus never would have been crucified. Colossians 1, 27. To them God willed to make known what are the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Christ in you, the hope of glory. Now, you can quote this to me because it's a very churchy thing to say. Speaking of the body, your body, physical body, you say the body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. Okay, that's true. And in the sacrificial system in the tabernacle of Moses, there was the most holy place and the holy place in the outer courts, which has an analogy to the spirit where the spirit of God resides. Your soul, equivalent to the holy place, and the body, which is now the outer courts. Now, I want you, because you could quote me that, the body is a temple of the Holy Spirit, but there's a context to that verse. So we're going to read the context of that verse. So this is in 1 Corinthians, starting, uh, 1 Corinthians 6, starting at verse 15. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a harlot? Certainly not. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a harlot is one body with her? For the two, he says, shall become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord is one spirit with them. Flee sexual immorality. Every sin that a man does is outside the body, but he who commits sexual immorality sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? That's the full context of what you would easily quote to me as your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. And I've underlined a very interesting verse. So, but before I talk about that, just appreciate, because it's just the gospel, that you were born in sin. So there is a real actual separation because what was part of you, you are made of three parts, your body, your soul, and the spirit. And prior to you having saving faith and coming to God in salvation and being born again, that spirit aspect of you was functionally dead. It was actually sunken more into the soul. So you operated as a carnal person. 
the spirit is largely inactive. So because the spirit, see, the Bible says God is spirit. So the true worshipers will worship in spirit and in truth. And I've said this before, like God is spirit. So that's like his nationalities, which he speaks a language is called spiritual. So the only way you can understand and appreciate and approach God who is spirit is to speak a spiritual language. That is part of your spirit. But prior to you being saved, that spiritual part of you is functionally inactive. And upon you being born again, all of a sudden, that spirit part of you became alive and God took up residence in your spirit akin to the most holy place. And now you can understand what this verse is saying, which is fascinating. I can't even tell you what it really, really, really means, but I'm just reading what it says. But he who is joined, this is in verse 17, but he who is joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. But remember, the context of this is, in a sense, your body, harlots, marriage, two becoming one. That's the context. So when this verse is saying that he who is joined to the Lord is one spirit with him, it's, I'm reading this as, and I believe it's the right way to understand it, is when God takes up residence in your spirit and you have a spirit, like, they're like joined. They're not like two separate things, God's spirit. Like, so that's why I've said to be like, you know, everybody wants to hear God. And everybody's like, oh my goodness, was that God or was that me? Well, you know what? I don't even know that where I end and God begins and vice versa. Because who you are in the spirit is literally saying, it's, you're joined like the two have become one. So I'm like, I'm trying, I can't even answer the question like, well, so where do I end? very end of this passage says you are not your own like I'm joined with him why did I go here the entire context of what I'm trying to land is everything has about been his presence and there was an original tension and design of what that looked like, how we benefit from and there was a problem which God took care of before the creation of the world the everlasting covenant was taken from creation to redemption and now Jesus was a fulfillment as part of the new covenant for redemption and what does redemption look like? so when you become a believer your spirit is joined with his I can't imagine any more intimate, more close aspect to describe you and the presence of God. You might think, well, I, I want to be aware, as this writing was, be aware of the presence of God, and yet by design you are joined with Him, so you're never apart from Him. fair. You're probably thinking to yourself, okay, I see it, I read it, I kind of understand what you're saying, but that's not my experience. Ah. Yeah. Get that. Let's talk about that. But let's just start with what the design of the entire plan of the everlasting covenant was to bring redemption and ultimately God wants to be with his people and the way he ultimately accomplished it in this mystery that was couldn't was never revealed until after Jesus was crucified is that it's not even me walking it's like I am joined with them individually each one of you that call yourselves born again believers Christians you have 
in their spirit, you are joined with him so that you can't even separate it. That's not my experience. Okay, let's talk about this and we're going to land it. Let me just say this to start. The reason why I took the time to do this, to at least explore, to try and answer that authentic struggle, it makes a very big difference for you, for me, if what I desire is what you were built by design to do versus you have to learn something to get access to it. It's a very big difference. My neighbor has a Subaru. Subarus are well-loved because they're very easy to mod. I could buy prepackaged tuning kits and increase the performance by adding the kit to the original design. It's very different if I tell you, you can do this by intentional design, that's the way you were built, versus you need to get an aftermarket add-on to now do the stuff. Very different. And so what I'm telling you is, you have by design, culminating when you look at the entire history of God's walk with man, his desire to be with his people, and the desire for the people to be in his presence, that by design, by default, in a scandalous way, you are now joined with him, so now you're inseparable by design. I like that message a heck of a lot better than, well, I give you the 12-step plan for you to figure out how you can be aware of his presence. And yet, you have, you are joined with him. So by design and by definition, you are with him. Always. Always. And yes, if we want to be real about it, well, that's not my experience. I'll tell you why. So think about it. Just, okay. I, what time we got? Oh, we're doing well. Okay. So you guys know me now. By now, I, I've, I talk, I preach here, blah, 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 blah. And you kind of know the way I'm wired. Okay, great. So can you just indulge me? Because maybe you don't like to think about this. See, I, like, I live in a world, I said this to somebody recently. You know, I live in a world with bad actors. And I kind of like it that there are people willing to deal with bad actors. Some people don't like to think the world's like that. That's the world I live in. So out of everything that I told you, remember, this is a mystery that was hidden because if they knew that this was the entire goal to sum up the entire problem that God had planned beforehand to deal before the creation of the world, they never would have done it. Why? Because it's crazy good for the people individually. Like, if I wanted to stop the people being with God, well, now I've totally lost it because it's like now just that's who they are. So if I'm a bad actor, which there are bad actors, at least in my world, I'm trying to get you to open your horizons to consider that that's true. If you were now, okay, so now that you've indulged me and you're saying, okay, I, I will kind of grudgingly accept that there are bad actors in the world. Now I'm saying, imagine you're the bad actor. Oh, that's kind of stretching. Well, you don't have to, if you just get in touch with your sinful nature, now you're a bad actor. It's not that hard. I'm not trying to produce sin, by the way, but I'm just, for illustration exercises, now assume you're the bad actor. What would you do? Like, 
I don't know. Maybe, I, maybe I'm good at being kind of thinking about bad actors and I kind of know what they would do. I don't know. Maybe you're like, well, I don't know. Whether she's like, yeah, I'm a pretty nice person. I don't want to wish ill on anybody. He's like, yeah, I, it's not my world. But anyway, let's, let's, let, let's throw out a couple possibilities. The most easiest and obvious one, now that you have the entire context of the way God saw the problem, dealt with the problem, and had the solution. If you, by default, built-in feature, nothing special, like this is like who you are now, when you became a believer, your spirit was joined with his, and now you are walking with him as an inseparable couple. How do I, like, mess that up? The analogy being that the most holy place was cut off from the people by a veil. My plan of attack is to reinsert the veil. That's my plan of attack. How do I do that? The soul. Your soul. The veil was separating the most holy place from the holy place akin to your spirit and your soul. If I want to shield you from, in a sense, having a sense of the presence of God, I insert a veil between your spirit and your soul. By elevating the soul in all of its machinations to be above the spirit such that it's effectively veiled because that's what the veil, the, literally the word veil means is to harden or to be calloused. I so, in a sense, inflict their soul by affliction of many types and oppression such that the soul is callous to the presence of the spirit it's as if it's veiled. That's what I do. Yeah, it's real. It's a process. We all have to work through that. Which is why the Bible says the word of God is living and active, sharper than a double-edged sword, penetrating so as to dividing soul and spirit. God knows plan attack and he's equipping for that separation between the soul and the spirit. Ultimately what he's doing is piercing the veil so that it would not be, your heart would not be callous so that you could apprehend, live in and enjoy the presence of God just by design. That's a whole topic, of course. And there's many ministries dealing with that. But if you at least apprehend and receive the notion that by design what you have, how you've been built, the reasons why the presence of God, which is you know, exhibited in you being joined with him in the spirit, why that is so precious, that will change your attitude in every, in profound ways about not what you consider is possible. And that is what I'm after. Because if you are willing to entertain the notion that this is how I was built, this is in a sense your birthright, now your attitude about what you're willing to accept changes. That's why. Instead of getting me trying to focus you on what you need to do, yeah, that's not really as helpful as just telling you this is what you have, not about telling you what you don't have. This is what you have. See, for me, and I'm going to really land this now, I don't have everything figured out, just like everybody else. But you know, the one thing that makes me sit down and be like, huh, 
where you can testify. Like I literally was like, huh. I told her something like, huh. Like the whole plan was, okay, God is it foreshadowing. There was a veil to the most holy place. And Jesus, by his finished work, by his body, tore the veil. So the veil doesn't exist. The veil's not there. The veil isn't there. There is nothing separating me from his presence. And his presence, as evidenced by his spirit in me, means that's where he's resident. And if there's no veil, huh. I mean, I literally did that in my mind, like, huh, huh. So there's no veil, which means everything that I could imagine enjoying, and we've talked about practically what was by design experience with you in his presence, like that's freely open, open, huh, yeah, yeah, that's pretty scandalous. So I'm going to leave that with you 